Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning here at First Christian Church of Fort Myers. My name is Les Harden, and I am professor of New Testament and Christian spirituality at the artist formerly known as Florida Christian College. Jimmy is right. I know several languages, but a few of them I picked up in the backwoods of central Kentucky, and for the sake of our collective holiness, I am not permitted to share the vocabulary of those languages with you here today. I spend my weekends preaching and teaching in churches all across the state of Florida, but for some reason, there's nobody's fault. I've never had the privilege of being here with you. And so if this is your first time here at First Christian Church, Fort Myers, it's mine too. And so on behalf of these good fine folks, I'd like to welcome us here to First Christian Church. But I've been keenly aware of your partnership with us throughout the years. I know some of the men here of the church from the Lake Aurora Men's Retreat, where I teach every year, and I've been good friends with several of your staff for a long time. A lot of it forged on the Key West bike ride. That's where I met Sean and Justin and Gary and Matt, and I met Jimmy on another bike ride almost a decade ago. One of the fondest memories that I have of you and your generosity was on the Key West bike ride that happened a few years ago. One of our students was driving the Johnson van, sorry, the, the Florida Christian College van, and pulled over in the grass and inadvertently ran over a post that was hidden in the grass and popped both tires on the right side of the van. So since we only had one spare, we had to call a tow truck. And so as they were hauling it away, there was a discussion between me and the ride director about who was gonna pay for these new tires. They were saying, school van, school problem. And I was saying, damage on your event, your problem. Well, little known to you probably that you guys had actually given Gary Cox a fat stack of cash from the missions budget to deal with any emergencies that came up on that ride. And Gary walked up to the student and said, no problem. (laughs) So uh, we've been aware of your generosity and your participation with us. And so we're very grateful for that. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers. While we're just now meeting each other, uh, we're well aware of your faithfulness, your devotion to the Lord Jesus, and your generosity to his people, and your continued partnership with us as we continue to train students of all ages to carry the gospel to a generation that so desperately needs it. This morning, we're continuing the series called Relational Vampires, How to Love the People Who Suck the Life Out of You. Last week, Matt covered the controlling people, people who threaten us and make us feel guilty. And then I told Matt that I didn't want to preach on what he gave me today, and then he threatened me and made me feel guilty. And so here today, we are dealing with critical people, those people in your life who are overly critical, overly harsh, unconstructive. I don't have many of those people in my life. I am those people in my life. And so I asked my wife, how do you, you know, deal with me on a daily basis? Our topic this morning is not how not to get criticized. You will get criticized. It's inevitable. Our topic isn't how to avoid criticism. Our topic is how to handle it well when it does come. We are the church, and we want to handle everything that comes our way with the love, grace, and respect that honors Jesus as Lord and King. 
So I want to start today by having you turn to Luke chapter 23. Hope you brought a Bible with you, whether it's on paper, whether it's on your your reading devices that you carry around with you. Luke 23. I think I can illustrate everything we need to do today from only two passages in the New Testament. The first occurs when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and Herod. Here are the first few verses of Luke 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, You say. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. I want you to notice that the only thing that Jesus says in this entire scene is, you say. It's very terse in the original language and could either read, yes, it is as you say, or something like, you said that, not me. In other words, is Jesus claiming that Pilate is right to say that he is the king of the Jews? Or is, you know, you said, you said it. Or is Jesus telling us that even the Romans are calling him king of the Jews when his own people refuse to do so? Are you the king of the Jews? You said that, not me. Those are your words. Whatever it is, this is a tense and politically charged situation. So we find in Jesus' example here our first piece of advice when dealing with critical people, and it's this. Sometimes we respond very carefully. Pilate was the Roman administrator of the province that the Romans called Judea. It's not like our modern governor who works independently of the federal government to improve the province of Florida. Pilate worked for the emperor of Rome, stationed in Judea by the emperor himself for two explicit purposes, to keep the peace and to force people to submit to the will of the Roman agenda. Pilate's job was to put down any would-be kings in this province. So when they bring Jesus to Pilate and say, he calls himself a king, what they're really saying is, do your job, Pilate, and crucify this man as an enemy of the state. So Pilate's trying to determine whether or not Jesus really is the king they claim him to be. And Jesus' response is really savvy. As I read this situation carefully, his response seems to be, Pilate, you said that, not me. Those are your words, not mine. The words king of the Jews just came out of your mouth. I mean, his response is only two words, you say. But Jesus is able to acknowledge the truth claim that he is king of the Jews, but simultaneously keep himself from being incriminated of resurrection, of insurrection in the eyes of the Romans. I once had the difficult assignment given to me by the Lord Jesus to confront a youth pastor about his adultery. He was unrepentant, and I had to pronounce judgments in kind. A year after that all went down, his mistress messaged me. Her message was full of hate and vitriol with all kinds of accusations about me that simply were not true. So I waited a bit, I cooled down, and I thought about it some. I mowed the yard, and while I was mowing the yard, The Lord spoke, and his words sounded awfully a lot like Solomon's. A soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. So I wrote this. Thanks for reaching out. 
I've been really hoping to meet you for, for a while. I didn't think our introduction would be filled with such venom. Perhaps we could start over, have a proper introduction, and move forward with some civility. She did. She apologized. And the next week drove two hours to meet me in my office for a very long conversation about her sin. So when you find yourself in critical situations, sometimes it's best to respond very carefully. But sometimes you don't have to respond at all. You're still in Luke 23. Read the next few verses with me. Luke 23, verse 5. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. So on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under the jurisdiction of the current king of the Jews, Herod, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. So when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been looking to have an audience with him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a miracle of some kind. He plied him with many questions. But notice this, Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him. They mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends where they had previously been enemies. Here's the second piece of advice in dealing with critical people. Sometimes we don't respond at all. When you read the Gospels carefully, you get the impression that Jesus did not like the family of Herod. Herod was the family name of several men who served as the official king of the Jews in the first century. There was Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. His son, Herod Archelaus, ruled Judea for most of Jesus' childhood. And it's confusing because all these guys just are called by the name Herod. But it's his brother, Archelaus' brother, Herod Antipas, the other son of Herod the Great, who Pilate sent Jesus to. And this guy has been trying to kill Jesus since Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, Herod had an audience with John the Baptist. And if you remember that scene well, you remember Herod executed John the Baptist during a state dinner. From that point forward, Luke says, and then he looked for an audience with Jesus. So the last prophet to be in the presence of this Herod got his head cut off. And now he's looking to have an audience with Jesus. And you know, if he ever gets in the presence of Herod, it's probably not going to go well for Jesus. He'll likely be killed. There's deep family stuff here. I mean, this family, the whole family is an enemy of Jesus and his people. There's deep political stuff here. As king of the Jews, Herod has to play nice with the Romans. And there's deep theological stuff here. Herod's family is not full-blooded Jew. They're from Edom. They're mudbloods. They're not permitted to rule as king of the Jews. He's no business ruling in this land. So even though it cuts against the grain of all that we think and believe and are taught and is said about how Jesus is just nice and kind and loves everybody, I find him incredibly contemptuous of Herod and this family. And in this situation where Herod Antipas is trying to finish the job that his daddy couldn't get done in Matthew 2, Jesus demonstrates for us sometimes it's best not to engage. 
I am vice president of the Orlando Road Club, which is a cycling club in Orlando. You could deduce that from the Orlando Road Club. You're smart. And though you wouldn't know what to look at me sometimes, I ride about 100 to 120 miles a week. I was in Sanford three weeks ago training with my coach, John Rogers, on a 60-mile ride. We'd stopped at the end of the trail at mile 30 to a, at a gas station to get some water. John went inside while I stayed outside and watched the bikes. And this 60-year-old guy was standing there, long gray hair, the glasses, the conquistador mustache, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer. And he said to me, do you ride a lot? Okay, first, hi, my name's so-and-so. How you doing? Good to see you. You doing okay? okay? No. Do you ride a lot? I would say so. How much do you ride? You ride every day? I ride four or five days a week. And then he said this. Well, I don't mean any offense, but you got a gut on you. <laughs> what I said was, I don't mean any offense, but you're a... I didn't say anything, actually. <laughs> I didn't say a single word. I said nothing. He actually made some derogatory comments about my coach, John, which I never told him. We got on our bikes and rode away. This guy's the kind of person who says nasty things to whoever he wants. And the reality is that he will eventually say something nasty to a person who will do to him the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus has prohibited me from doing. Sometimes it is appropriate to say nothing. You don't have to respond to every criticism that comes your way. Some people cannot be convinced or swayed. Some people simply will not see reason. So consider that like Jesus, sometimes the appropriate response is just not to engage at all. I've said this before in a number of contexts and it applies here. You jump in a pig pen with a bar of soap, pigs won't get clean, you'll get dirty. There's your tweetable line from the sermon, okay, if you're looking for that. Some people don't wanna have a discussion or hear what you have to say. Some people just wanna criticize and hate, so consider when it's time not to respond. You don't have to have the last word in every critical confrontation. Stay out of the pig pen and keep yourself clean. Now, so far, we've been talking about how to deal with critical people when we are not in the wrong, how to deal with folks who just want to criticize us for no reason whatsoever. But what if we are in the wrong? What if their criticism is right? What if we need to be, as the kids say, called out? And for the second part of the sermon, I'd like for you to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Okay, Galatians is in the newer parts. Okay, get about halfway through the newer parts and you're, you're close, okay? So turn to Galatians chapter two. There was a time when Paul had to criticize one of his fellow apostles and what happened and how they worked it out is instructive for us if we find ourselves in this situation. Galatians two, and I'll start reading in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even by their hypocrisy, the great Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew and you're living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How then can you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay, lots of complicated stuff going on here. In Paul's day, the Jewish people had certain customs. 
They observed ritual food laws, which we would say keeping kosher. They practiced circumcision for their males, strictly observed the Sabbath, and made pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the Jewish feasts regularly. Now, as the gospel of Jesus began to make inroads into the Jewish community, a teaching started to circulate that if you wanted to be saved in the Jewish Messiah, you had to observe Jewish traditions. It got so pervasive that they started teaching Gentile converts that they also had to obey all the Jewish traditions if they wanted to be saved. So if you are a Gentile, you have to be circumcised and keep kosher and you can't go eat barbecue and you can't go to Red Lobster and you can't go to Papa John's and all this stuff. This teaching got so pervasive that even Peter the Apostle, whom Paul calls by his Jewish name in this text, he calls him Cephas. Even Peter the Apostle and Barnabas were led astray. So when Peter came to Antioch, he was cool with the Gentile Christians. He would have table fellowship with them, eat with them, hang out with them. He didn't care what they ate. But when this teaching got hold in him, he started to withdraw from them and say, I will not have fellowship with you until you observe the Jewish customs. And in this way, he contributed to the divisions within the church and enforced a false teaching about the nature of salvation. So Paul had to confront him. And it worked. Peter listened. Peter understood. Peter reasoned. And Peter repented. And there was no more problem with either Peter or Barnabas after this. Which brings me to our third point. Occasionally, we listen and make changes. No matter what we know or how confident we are or how much of an expert we are in something, we don't always see things clearly. Sometimes we have to have the humility to listen and make corrections. I hate course evaluations. I hate them. I mean, I really hate them. I don't know if I'm being clear about this. I hate them. There's a ton of statistical research out there that proves that they don't work. My sister is a statistical researcher. She has all this data. They're predicated on college students having enough understanding of course content, pedagogy, instructional methods, course design, course objectives, assessment, and cognitive outcomes to be able to judge their professors well. And they don't. Most students ignore them. The ones that do fill them out do so because they're mad about something. The majority of students only fill them out when they're uncomfortable and university-level content is designed by nature to bring you out of your comfort zone. But every now and then, I have to listen. One of the best things I ever did was to hire an education major to be my TA. She worked for me for about two years, and when the course evaluations came in, I had her read them. I had her process them, weed out all the hateful comments, and distill for me two areas in which I needed to make changes. As an education major, she was able to think with me about why I was doing things the way I was doing them and in what ways it was and wasn't working and then help me figure out how to meet those same goals in different educational uh, methods. So be willing to listen and make changes if the criticism is warranted. Critics are not always right, but when they are, you have to confront that head on. And sometimes you just got to sit in front of the cameras like Coach Prime and say, that was a good old-fashioned butt whooping and we got work to do. And I'll finish with this final piece of advice about how to deal with your critics. Try to work it out in person. One of the reasons I hate course evaluations is because they're anonymous. 
You can say any hateful thing you want on a course evaluation, even if it's untrue. And you don't have to sign your name to it, and your dean and the provost will hammer you about it simply because once a student submits that evaluation, it is in the records of the university forever, whether it's true or not. I've been on the receiving end of that uh, more than once. But the best course evaluation I ever got was from a student named Rodney Fletcher. Rodney had been in my spiritual formation course, and after the exam was over, I thought that was really savvy. He waited until the exam was over. He came to my office and he sat down. He said, Harden, I liked the course, but I was hoping to get something specific in this course and you didn't give it to me. And I said, tell me more. We talked about it for a while and when I listened to him, I thought, man, he's right. That would make a transformative addition to this course. And now we spend an entire week on that thing in that course. Why? Because Rodney had the maturity to come talk to me about it in person. He looked me in the eye and gave me a chance to explain what I was trying to do. He then asked me to look him in the eye and listen to his concerns and lay out for me how I could make the course better. He knew what he was training for and he felt like that part was deficient and he wanted to have that piece there. Look at Galatians 2 again and notice how Paul addressed Peter. It says in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. One thing that needs to be corrected here is our view of what that means. We tend to read that like I got up in his face, but that's an assumed tone on our part. It doesn't reflect what the language is saying. It reflects more our attitudes about Paul being a mean-spirited jerk than it does about Paul's actual demeanor. Here's what's really going on. Paul was a man known for, for writing letters and known for confronting difficult situations from a distance because he was always traveling. But in this situation, Paul felt it was serious enough that he needed to look Peter in the eye. So he opposed him, as the text says, to the face, which is an idiom for face to face. It tells us not only that he respected Peter a great deal, but it was serious enough to work out in person. So when there's criticism, do your best to work it out person to person, face to face. Don't do things anonymously. If you're criticized by another believer, don't take to social media and then criticize them anonymously. Have the maturity to work it out in person. If you're upset with a college professor, don't take to anonymous course evaluations, go visit them in person. If your boss criticizes your work performance, don't blast it on Twitter, listen. Don't write anonymous letters. Don't send anonymous cards. Don't put anonymous suggestions in the offering plate. Don't send messages through other people and don't make passive aggressive suggestions around those people hoping the message will get to them. Do what the Lord Jesus commanded us to do. See, if you know someone has a grievance with you, go to your brother or sister and work it out, just the two of you. Critical people can be vampires. They can suck the life out of you, but only if you let them. And knowing how to respond well is important. And of course, before you can respond well, you have to know how to respond, and that's gonna take some time. Unfortunately, the only way to get better at this is to get more experience at it. So when it comes, when you first get that sting of criticism, your heart is gonna get immediately agitated. So guard your heart. 
And when the flood of criticism comes in and for whatever reason you can't get the gates of your heart closed off to that quickly enough, then it's best not to respond at all. If you can't keep your heart shut, it's best to keep your mouth shut. But if you can close your heart to the pain of it all and really listen, then you'll have a chance to season the conversation with grace and love. And who knows, maybe like Peter, the criticism will make you a stronger person. Maybe like Paul, you'll win over the person that you have to confront face to face. When you're being criticized, keep the Lord Jesus between you and your critic. And always work toward the peace, love, and healing that Jesus died for. It won't always work. But when it does, you'll have done the kingdom in the name of the Lord Jesus a great service. In 2014, deep in the middle of his second term as, pres as president, Barack Obama attended a symposium for young men in the D.C. school district. It was a difficult time for him, and he was being harshly criticized by the media, as all presidents are these days. One of the young men asked him, Mr. President, how do you handle all of the criticism that seems to be coming at you these days? And he said, you know, that's an interesting question. Dealing with criticism successfully boils down to two things. Focus on the goal and stick to your core principles. That, I just don't watch TV. <laughs> That's great advice. Focus on the goal and stick to your core principles. Friends, the goal is not to win in a critical confrontation. That's not the goal. The goal is reconciliation. One to another and unbelievers to the Lord Jesus. That's the goal. And the core principles all revolve around Christ-likeness. How to behave as responsible people in the kingdom. Focus on that goal and on the core principles for kingdom living that Jesus has given us. And you'll be well on your way to dealing with those relational vampires that are overly harsh and critical. Father, it is easy for us to admit that when criticism comes our way, it stings, it hurts. And in that hurt, we don't always respond well. What we ask from you, Father, is the ability to know how to respond well and to do so in ways that honor the Lord Jesus rather than ways that make him look bad. Help us to honor him and give him a good name in this community, in the places we work, in the places we live, in the places where we go to and fro. We ask that because we want his name to be magnified in this community. In his name we pray. pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.